listeners, and welcome back to Poetry for All. Today, we've got something slightly different to launch the fourth season. Back in the fall, Grace Toulousen, a professor at Brandeis University, invited us to visit her class because her intro to creative writing class has been using our poetry podcast throughout the semester. And her own students made poetry podcasts as well. So she invited us to class to talk about this podcast, what it is we're doing, and why we're doing it. And what follows is a little bit of selection from that conversation. We hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much. I remember teaching in a in a church basement to this group of old folks uh, a series on poetry, four weeks on poetry. Uh, and it was just, you know, sort of like greatest hits kind of thing. This was back when I lived in Texas. And I was teaching poetry. And, and at first, the guy who set this up said, I'm not sure if anyone will come. And by the end, it was all the seats were filled. And it wasn't because I'm such a great teacher. It's because the poems were great and people didn't realize that they could be moved by them. Uh, and they just assumed that poetry was not for them. And I remember one old guy came up to me with tears in his eyes thinking about uh, the way that uh, he hadn't read poetry in years and how a certain poem reminded him that we had read of his mom, who had died many years before. And, you know, having had these experiences, I thought, okay, we just need to teach more poetry because it's great. And, and people don't know that it's great. I mean, poets know that it's great. People in university settings and English departments know that it's great. Uh, and I think there is a, a, a wide-ranging and lively conversation in those circles. So I don't want to circumscribe that. I think it's great. But I think there are actually a lot of people who, who miss out on basically the opportunity of poetry. So we in English departments are very invested in printed material, right? Like that's been true ever since the invention of the book. But actually, I'm most excited when poetry comes off the page. And it can do that in a lot of different ways. One is through video. Another is through just live embodied performance. Uh, Another way is through social media. So that's really exciting to me because the more frequently poetry can get off the page, the more accessible it is and the more kinds of poetry you can consume in any way you want to find it. So Joanna and I have been friends for about 20 years and um, sort of always been kicking around this idea of talking about poetry. And when the pandemic hit, it was sort of like, well, here's something we could do that feels doable. And it'll be kind of just fun. Like, I think we're both at a place in our careers where we don't need to achieve things in order to get the next uh, promotion or the next thing. So we could just do things that seem fun and worthwhile. Uh, And this seemed like one of those things. And I will say during the pandemic, when we started doing this, one of the best parts about doing it was that we could record a podcast, edit a podcast episode uh, and release it into the world in a week or so. And so the ability to kind of like make a coherent episode and release it into the world just felt good. One of the things that really drew me to this project was to think through a kind of pedagogy, a way of teaching the poetry that would be in some sense grounded in my wonder, my awe, my appreciation for the literature that I was reading. A lot of what I do elsewhere is not grounded in that. It's grounded in historical context, scholarship, archival findings. How do we understand this in its own period and day and era and so forth? So this was a way to teach and to teach broadly by starting with a kind of pedagogy of, isn't this just great? Even though Abram and I are very interested in doing what we love and then hoping that others love it too, 
we did have to do some market research, right? We did have to be somewhat strategic in figuring out what distinguishes what we do from what other people do. And there are a lot of poetry podcasts out there. The world is lousy with poetry podcasts. But <laughs> uh, one thing we saw a deficit in is poetry podcasts that focus on close reading. So a lot of poetry podcasts are very interested in talking about the guest and how they arrive at a poem and their lifestyle. They're less invested in close reading, in figuring out how to access difficult poetry, you know, or seeing the layers of meaning in a poem. So we that, that took some time for us to become acquainted with what others are doing, just so we could see how to position ourselves as well. Yeah. And I think the other thing there is, on the one hand, we want to give access to difficult poems. There are poems that are difficult. I mean, it's it's a whole tradition of poetry uh, to be difficult. Um, but there are also a lot of poems that are not difficult. They're very accessible. And I think that part of the idea of the podcast was to demonstrate that to as many people as possible. So on the one hand, we wanted to reach uh, classrooms where we could talk directly to students who are learning about creative writing, learning about poetry directly, think about close reading, think about how to understand poems and then create their own as, as well. But we also wanted to reach, and, and I think have reached, uh, a broad audience of people who have or are not in school right now, who are not in classes, and who haven't really thought about poetry in 20, 30 years, in part because they thought it was a difficult lockbox uh, where the meaning was trapped inside and they didn't have a key and only the teacher did and they haven't been in school in that long. And so therefore, what are they going to do with a poem? Uh, and we want to kind of show them that, like, actually, there's tons of poems that reach you right now very easily. And even those poems that you like feel an attachment to right away and, and sort of feel like you get emotionally or intellectually or otherwise, even those poems have layers if you want to spend time with them. And you, you can begin to figure out even how deep they run as well. We have very different interests and very different attachments to poets. And more than once, Abram has had to persuade me to do a poem that I just, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so Carrad Manley Hopkins is like the one example that we've gone to more than once where I, you know, I never studied him in school. I never enco really encountered him uh, except casually as an independent reader. And every time I did, I was just like, oh, I don't know. Uh, but Abram loves Gerard Manley Hopkins. And what's funny is that he was able to persuade me to see that poet in a whole new light. But then that wasn't the only episode where that happened because we had another episode with a po contemporary poet named Jenny Johnson. And uh, Jenny Johnson is magnificent, but she's directly uh, influenced by Gerard Manley Hopkins uh, and signals um, that debt to him throughout that poem. And so we ended up having actually two episodes that taught me a lot about not only how special he was, but the long sort of um, lineage of inspiration that he's given to contemporary poets. And that's something that we've gone back to again and again, which is, uh, I think we have this hangover from romanticism, where we imagine that poets, they sort of have ideas come out of their heads, like Athena being born out of the head of Zeus, 
you know, that we have this notion of the poet as working in solitude, waiting for inspiration, being on fire with the Holy Spirit of a poem, and then just spewing something, you know. Uh, Spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Well, this is it. And so many people read that in high school or college. They hear that quote. They see so many different portrayals of poets in film, in novels, and in the poetry itself that, that sort of reiterates this. But most of the time, that's not the case at all. Most of the time, Poets are in conversation with other poets. They're reading other poets all the time, and they're drawing from those uh, in sources of inspiration. They're arguing with them. They're building upon them. And so that's one strategy that we use as we curate this podcast is sometimes we'll look at that conversation between two poets. So just as an example, William Shakespeare and Jen Bourbon. So Jen Bourbon is a contemporary American poet and visual artist, and she has a beautiful book of erasure poems called Nets. So she's erased the word sonnets, and the book is called Nets. And they're erasures. And so erasure is a very simple poetic procedure in which you take someone else's text and you just erase words and phrases until a poem of your own emerges, however that happens, you know? And so she erased Shakespeare's poems, and we read several of those erasures in that episode. It's one of my favorites because, again, it focuses on that intertextuality. So that is one feature of our choices, is that we want to think about the conversations poets are having with each other, the traditions that they're building. We also do clusters. And so, for example, we have Claude McKay, Langston Hughes, and County Cullen. And so as we build out the the um, the podcast, we'll be able to, to build out these clusters. And so in the future, we might be able to say, hey, if you want to study the Harlem Renaissance, here's three to five episodes on the Harlem Renaissance or something like that. So that's part of the decision-making too. But I think one of the overarching things here is that we want breadth and variety. So we want poet, poets from the 1600s and poets from yesterday. Um, and we want sonnets and we want elegies and we want villanelles and we want all kinds of things. Just again, very quick thing. There's a way in which the culture can sometimes determine some of those energies. I'm very interested in this notion of how social media can disrupt the common ways in which people share their work via publication, right? So for so much of the 20th century, we had print publishing houses that were the gatekeepers um, for all kinds of different poems. But what if they don't have to be the gatekeepers, you know? And what if poets have more control over how and where they share their work? I actually, I personally find that very exciting. I think one of the great joys of doing this podcast with Joanne is just how much I'm learning, even on poems that I think I know, or the poems that I bring to Joanne, where I'm like, here's the poem, I'm the lead because I brought it to you. And Joanne's like, I think this means it. I'm like, whoa, I've never seen that before. I think people tend to think about poetry as an individual, as uh, individualistic, that, you know, an individual writes a poem and then an individual somewhere else sits down and reads a poem and either is moved or is not moved by it. But actually, I think that poetry works best in conversation and having conversations about poetry is part of the 
part of the fun and part of the great way of getting to know poetry and to know how poems work. Uh, and so the collective conversation aspect of it, I think, is really important. And then it just becomes fun. You know, if you can do the projects in life where you get to keep learning. I know so much more about poetry doing this podcast than I ever did before. Uh, and part because I get to work with Joanne, who's an awesome teacher and knows everything. But uh, but it's but it's just partly the conversation aspect of it. Even though we went to graduate school together, we do come from different worlds in a lot of ways. So Abram, not exclusively, but primarily his research interest is in early American literature. Right. So like even my training goes through like Whitman and the American Renaissance and all those writers. Uh, And so for my major fields exams and my tests and my, you know, things to get through grad school, I had to do a major field list of, well, all American poets, that one went up to Toni Morrison, but focusing in particular on American literature pre-1900. And I know nothing. I know absolutely. (laughs) It's shocking. It's shocking. Because when I hear some of what he's telling me about the American colonies and the this and the that, I'm like, whoa, too too modern, too modern. (laughs) My area, where I went to graduate school, is for the Renaissance. So it's for Shakespeare and his contemporaries. So roughly that period between 1500 and like the furthest I'll go is 1650. So when I start hearing about the 1700s, I start shaking in my boots. But all, but it, I guess what I'm trying to say, we all have gaps in our knowledge. Um, and that never goes, how could any one of us possibly read everything that there is to read? This is a very old school thing uh, that had currency about 500 years ago, but I still think it's relevant. There's a literary critic and historian that Abram and I read back in the Stone Age, Stanley Fish. He was one of the innovators of a kind of reading called reader response criticism. And it sounds fancy, but it's a very simple idea, which is that poems are not finished until we read them and have conversations about them. And that's really important because each generation of readers has new priorities and new identities and new experiences that they're bringing to a Poe poem or a Frost poem or a Ginsberg poem that maybe even Ginsberg himself wouldn't even have articulated. And that's that means that literature will always remain alive as long as we are there to help complete the poetic practice. <laughs>